you, hey, well, we're going to very quickly jump into, uh, took us a while to get here, but part four of our 15 Disciplines of Love series that we were working through uh, a little while ago, and I want to continue in, and hopefully we can do today, and then next week we'll finish up uh, all of our Disciplines of Love as we uh, step into the Christmas season. But if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4. And I'm going to read very quickly. It's going to say this. Love is patient in kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what we've been looking at over the last couple of sections of this message is that there are 15 disciplines of love. Now, the word discipline, my favorite way to describe it is that discipline is doing what you should do, when you should do it, whether you feel like it or not. This, you know, when it comes to the gym, if you rely on motivation, then the day you don't feel motivated, you're not going to go. If you rely on feelings, then if you don't feel like it, you're not going to go. But discipline is doing what you know you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, whether you feel like it or not. And the reason that we've entitled this series, The 15 Disciplines of Love, is because love is something more than an emotion. It's something more than a feeling. It is something we choose to walk in as believers. And the world has used love in a multifaceted way. The world has corrupted the word love in some capacity. As we look through this, we're looking at the, uh, the disciplines of godly love, love, not the love of the world. We choose to put on love. We choose to be in love because love is the greatest of all. It's the love of God that is the greatest of all. And so I want to encourage us and inspire us in our relationships, in our daily life, in all that we do, that we would be a disciplined kind of Christian that chooses to do what we should do, when we should do it, whether we feel like it or not, that we would express godly love towards other people regardless of how they make us feel, of how they treat us, or anything that we would choose to be loved to a world that desperately needs His love. Amen? And I want to quickly, because it's been a few weeks, I just want to run back over the few that we've been to through reviewing. The first one is that love is patient. When we looked at that love is patient with people, when we literally translate that section, it's patience with people. It means that we can be wronged, and we can be wronged, and we can be wronged again, but we have the, and, and when we have the ability to retaliate, we choose not to. We are patient with people. It's important to be patient with people. The second was that love is kind, and we looked into how this isn't just a, a, a sweet disposition, but that kind is to be useful to people, to be someone who 
does something. The world, uh, the literal word kindness here means to show oneself useful. In other words, love uses itself to help others. Love doesn't use other people, amen? The third is that love does not envy you. We can describe the description of envy as a resentful, dissatisfied longing for another's possessions, position, fortune, achievements, or success. We're not called to be envious of what other people have, but we can be inspired by what other people have, or we can celebrate what other people have, because envy is earthly, it's unspiritual, and ultimately, it's demonic. Envy creates disorder. Envy, the Bible says, is involved in every evil practice. Envy robs us of enjoying life. The antidote of envy is to be content with what we have. Amen? The fourth was that love does not boast. And boasting is the outward verbal or written expression of an inward pride. Number five is that Love is not proud. The sin of pride is a destructive inward attitude of superiority that is full of conceit and arrogance. That is pride. And boasting is the outward expression of the internal sin of pride. And we spent some time going through seven problems with pride. The first was that pride is opposed by God. The second is that pride is the precursor to disgrace. The third is that pride is unteachable. Number four is that pride blames others. Number five is that pride destroys relationships. Number six is that pride glories in its shame. And number seven, that pride is the enemy of humility. We then looked through and looked at the seven advantages of humility. And I love the description of humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. When it's thinking less of ourselves, we step into this place of what we would call falsely humble. You know those people, they're really talented, they get up here and they sing really, really well, and it's like incredible, and we've all got goosebumps, and we're feeling it, and you get off, and they're like, hey, we say, that was incredible. They're like, oh, you know, I can't even sing. It's just, relax. We know you can sing. You know you can sing. Anybody in here who can't sing, would you ever get up and sing in a microphone in front of a group of people if you knew you couldn't sing? Yet half of America does it when the voice comes on. But, you know, that's them. Seven advantages of humility is that humility produces wisdom. Humility makes us great in God's kingdom. Humility brings favor. Humility invites teachability. Uh, humility creates a posture of prayer and reliance upon God. Humility is the key for a repentant heart, and humility is a posture to receive healing. We then, number six, look, oh no, sorry, then we get to number six, which is where we start our time today, and that is love is not rude. Love is not rude. It's amazing how practical the Bible can be. If we're to walk in love, if we're to put on love, if we're to be disciplined in love, then we have a responsibility not to be known as people who are rude. The Greek uh, here really essentially speaks of love is uh, unbecoming. It acts in an unbecoming way. It, 
It's to behave in a dishonorable way, to act inappropriately, or practically to be ill-mannered. Rudeness, uh, is, rudeness is rooted in selfishness, and we're going to see in a couple of minutes that love is not self-seeking. You know manners. You guys ever been taught to mind your manners? Or you have to be, have dinner table manners? The thing about being polite or having manners is that, that it's meant to reduce the friction of human interaction. Now, there are times that friction is good because friction can create uh, movement, it can create power and energy, but manners, being polite, exists to help unnecessarily, sorry, to help remove unnecessary friction in areas where it is not necessary. To act in a rude and dishonorable way reveals a lack of consideration for other people. It's to be inconsiderate, to not consider how somebody else will feel. We understand that in life, and more than ever come this season of life, there are hard conversations that need to be had. There are, when there's a lot of crazy talk out there, there's an appropriateness to bringing truth where truth is being twisted, but it's important that we consider how other people feel. There's a great uh, political commentator I love, and he has this statement, and it's this. He says, facts don't care about your feelings. You ever heard that before? Because we live in a pretty feeling-driven world, and whatever I feel takes precedence as truth. And although this guy is correct in saying that facts don't care about your feelings because what you feel doesn't change truth. doesn't matter how you feel, what you feel. Two plus two will always equal four, even if you feel like it should equal five. But although his statement's true, you know what does care about your feelings? Love. Because love's considerate. It's not rude. It considers other people. That's what the godly kind of love does. You guys know about personality types? We are talking about them the other day. I know there's a lot of controversy around different personality types and different systems, but I want to tell you this plain and clear, that just because you might be an A-type personality doesn't give you license to be a jerk. I can tell you that much. Just because you're an upfront kind of person that likes to confront situations and stand for truth and you're like, I'm going to bust that door down no matter what. Just because a personality test tells you that's how you act doesn't mean it's the way you should act. Savannah said it feels personal because she would be in that category of type A or 8. I was very disappointed when I did mine many years ago. One of the main attributes was entertainer. Like people like Miley Cyrus and Marilyn Monroe, imagine getting that as your personality type. I was super disappointed. Savannah gets like Walt Disney and Steve Jobs, these innovative people that changed the world, and there I am. I came in like a wrecking ball. We're supposed to speak truth in love, and love is not rude. Not, not, it's not hiding from truth. It's not digging our head in the sand to avoid confrontation, but love is not rude. 
a husband who loves his wife will not treat her rudely, but with honor and respect. As part of being a godly Christian. A Christian who loves his neighbor will do the exact same. We would never expect a person who loves his wife to be rude and condemning and inconsiderate. We would always consider that outrageous, but the same thing applies for those who are called to love thy neighbor, that we wouldn't be rude. A, love, a, a life compelled by love is shown out in the way that we speak, the way that we act, in our disposition, in our attitude. And I'll tell you the truth, that nobody is ever won over when you are outright rude. So basically, if we want to walk in love, don't be a jerk. A jerk can be defined as a contemptible, obnoxious person. And that's not love, amen? Love always considers others cares about others. It's humble, it's kind, and it's patient. Amen? The seventh one this morning is this. It says that love does not insist on its own way, or love is not self-seeking, or love is not selfish. Love, this is the, 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 the complete epitome of the Christian life and Christian love. Every one of the 15 disciplines is rooted in this idea that godly love does not seek its own good, but it seeks the good of others. That can be extremely difficult in many different circumstances, especially when you get up and you're desperate for coffee, and there's two coffee cups, and one has more coffee in it than the other one, and you think, she's not awake. I'll just take the big cup. That's not selfless. That's selfish. And it's the, it's the root of all things evil, selfishness, self-gratification, self-desire. When we're called to be self, selfishness is defined in lacking consideration for others, concerned chiefly uh, with one's own personal profit and or pleasure. Selfishness is the end or self-focus it can be designed, defined as, is the antithesis of love. It's the direct opposite of a godly kind of love. Galatians 2.20, it's one of my favorite yet most challenging scriptures. Galatians 2.20, it's Paul speaking. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And this life that we now live is in the flesh is in, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who's living in and through me. You guys have what's called the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. You guys have rights in America, right? Who enjoys having rights? Anybody excited you have rights? I mean, you should be excited. When things go wrong here, you at least have a Constitution to fall back on. When my country, if things go wrong, we're just doomed. 
I mean, we don't have a constitution. We have what we feel like is rights until the government locks everything down and you find out you can't even leave your own country without the government's permission. Did that ever happen to anybody before? You weren't allowed to leave your country without your government's permission? That happened to me. Anyway, rights are a good thing. And so you've got your American rights, your constitutional rights, but the thing about being a Christian is that you died to yourself. That you died to the ways and the wisdom of this world. And although, of course, having rights is an incredible gift as a Christian, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself lishly for me. He gave up his right to sit on a throne in heaven. He humbled himself. He came down. He died on the cross so that you and I could be free. We are called to lay down our rights so that people might meet Jesus. Amen? That's part of the godly kind of love that it's not self-seeking. If you want to do well in your job, don't expect your boss to serve you. Serve your boss. If you want to, if you're the boss in your working environment and you want a healthy culture, don't expect your employees to live to serve you. Live to serve your employees that their experience working for you and being led by you might be one of the greatest experiences they have by serving others, laying down your life so that others may flourish. It's one of the most challenging things in Christianity is to die to ourselves, to die to how people treat us, to die to how somebody else looks at us, what they say about us, that we could be loved because our greatest desire is not that of self, but it's that of others. If you want a good marriage, live to serve your spouse instead of being served by your spouse. Imagine you entered into your marriage or your relationships with the posture of a servant that's not seeking your own good, but the good of your others. I tell you, it'll solve multitude of marriage problems. If you want to have a good sex life in marriage, approach sex not to be served, but in the capacity to serve one another. You see, lust is selfish. Worldly sexuality is to gratify the flesh. But can I tell you, those who aren't married and those who are, your spouse is not a tool for your sexual gratification. Your spouse is someone who's supposed to be loved. And sexual intimacy is, a, is an affection of love. And if we come into that position, that posture, to serve one another in all capacities, your marriage will flourish, your life will flourish, because when two people decide to serve one another, when two people deserve to outdo one another in love, then it creates atmosphere for the miraculous and for godly love to flourish. Jesus, our great example, Mark 10, verse 43, it says, But it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life over as a ransom for many. The Bible says it was for the joy that was set before Jesus the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
The cross was the most severe punishment of that day. The cross was a punishment of, of, of humility. It was an intimidation tool to threaten other insurrectionists. The cross is what Jesus endured for you and for me because he was outworking the epitome of Christian love to lay down his desires, his comforts, his needs to serve the many. Anybody thankful that Jesus was a selfless kind of lover? Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 says it beautifully. Through 8 it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind. Verse 3, doing nothing out of selfish ambition. You guys know what nothing means? Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each Sorry, but each of you to the interests of others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, so in our relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul says, in your relationships, be like Jesus who humbled himself, that God would become a man, that God would be able to be sit in a womb for nine months, to be born in a manger. He humbled, remember, he's the God of the universe. Jesus was there in the beginning, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus has always been eternally God, yet he humbled himself. And Paul says, when it comes to relationships with one another, be like Jesus. Imagine we could get this. Imagine we would stop living for our own selfish gratification. Imagine we would get this and not live constantly to make sure I'm good at the cost of everybody else. Imagine you lived in such a way that at the cost of your own comfort, your own wealth, your own joy, your own situation, you would give your life so that others would flourish. And if this became a culture, it doesn't become lopsided because I know there are relationships where one person's always serving, one person's always being patient, and one person's always the one dying, and the other one sits there enjoying the benefits of somebody living like Jesus while they're living like hell, and that's not okay. Imagine the culture was an all-in kind of thing, because if that's the culture, if we're to outdo each other, 
in honor, as the Bible says, then I'm outdoing you and then you're outdoing me and we create a culture that creates a place where everybody's living to serve one another and everybody's serving one another creates a culture and an environment and a family where all can flourish. Amen? It's like Jesus. Simple. Just be like Jesus. Figure it out already. The perfect Son of God. Just be like Him. Simple. Number eight is, love is not easily angered, or love is not irritable. The version we read, it says, love is not, re, uh, sorry, is not, yeah, is not easily angered or irritable. This word is speaking of being easily provoked, or speaks of the idea of not flying off the handle, not being short-tempered, being hot-tempered, Often, if you've ever done it, because I've done it a million and one times, it often makes us make quick judgments. It makes us look for immediate revenge. It in, gives us the ability to say things that we know are hurtful, but not even true. I remember when I was a lost young man, I used to pride myself on knowing if someone came at me, I could cut them so low that they'll walk out of there hating their life all day, that they'll never try and confront me again with this kind of thing. And this is what this love is not easily angered, it's not irritable, comes to. Because we make short judgments, we, we say things that we know will hurt people when they upset us. But I want to tell you, love refuses to jump to conclusions because it's patient. Love refuses to take revenge because it's kind and it's selfless. But the thing about, you know, this is where we talk about angry. And so we've all had feelings of anger. It seems an impossible task to never feel angry. And so we have to look at, can we ever be angry if love is not angry or love is not irritable? Ephesians verses 4 and 26 says, be angry. So now we're being told to be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So we can see through the book of Ephesians that there's an ability to be angry and yet not sin. James 1.19 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear so much wisdom in this verse. Quick to hear, be good at listening, slow to speak, don't talk so much, get myself in trouble there all the time, the old talking too much thing. Slow to speak and slow to anger. So we see through Ephesians, the book of James, that we can be angry and not sin, and that if we are to be angry, we should be slow to anger. In the book of Acts chapter 17, Verse 16, it's, this is Paul, and it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This word provoked is the same word we see in the book of 1 Corinthians saying, be angry, I mean, sorry, love is not angry, it's the same word. But here Paul is provoked, it says, as he saw that the city was full of idols. You see, the difference is, anger at people who offend you is not love. 
But there's a place where we can be provoked. We, our spirit can be stirred against things that offend God. Against cultural norms that have made idols out of things that we know work against the very nature and the heart of God. You see, Paul was angry not at the people who offended him, but he was stirred about the idolatry in the city. This is what we would talk about as the thing called righteous indignation or righteous anger. Paul was angry at the sinful behavior that mocked God. He's frustrated at the anger of hypocritical Christians. But this is not what Paul was speaking about in the first Corinthians where it talked about love is not easily provoked because the big difference here is that love is not easily provoked by people. And if we are finding our place where we're stirred and irritated by what's happening around the world, remember that be angry and do not sin. Be slow to anger. Don't fly off the handle in frustration. Don't go out and say something stupid. There's a big difference between angry at sin and the result of sin in the world, being frustrated. Come on, we have to be a little bit stirred up in our spirit. There is an attack on our generation of young children with sexuality and all the craziness that's being put into our schools. That should irritate, it should frustrate you, it should draw you to your knees to pray and act to change our situation, but it's not quick to anger. We don't fly off the handle. We're not provoked easily. We're provoked to our knees in worship saying, Jesus, help us. Pray for our city. Pray for our families. Pray for our schools. Let something, a little bit of righteous indignation, we'll get put a bit of a fire in your belly to do something about the sin that's running rampant. But it's not towards those who persecute us. I can be frustrated at policy, but if someone comes at me and they call me a bigot, they call me a whatever they want to call me, love is not easily provoked by those who offend me. Love is not easily provoked when your spouse is treating you poorly. It's slow. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't respond. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about. Or a good example is, anybody here drive a car? A couple of us. You ever drive a car and traffic's going here, you're in this lane, and now your lane's ending. You ever had that? It's like about to, you have to, what we call merge. And you get there and this car is here and you're here and you're like, I'll just go in and this person goes, no you won't. And they sit right there at the back of that car to make sure you don't get in. Welcome to, welcome to Nashville. I mean, how dare you take up that half of a second of their journey, but love is not easily provoked, and who knows, that provokes me. You know what I do? I shouldn't, but I just, I just start going. And I just, I take the gamble that they would rather not hit their car on mine, and I push, and I just, no, I mean, I repent, I'm sorry. That's what the flesh in me wants to do. The love in me says, have it. And then you, anyway. But you know that feeling where someone and you feel irritated? Or the other day I was just driving and some guy's coming really fast behind me. And so you're like, I'm just going to put on my brakes. I wouldn't do that. You probably would. But love is not easily provoked. Road rage, that's not love. You're so concerned 
with how someone else is driving, you're so selfish and self-centered, not worrying about them, where they're going, why they're frustrated. Imagine we shifted our perspective in a posture of selfless love, and that person who's racing and frustrated and angry starts to think, I wonder what they've been through today. I wonder what their life has looked like. I wonder what just happened at home. And love hopes the best and says, I'm not going to be frustrated, but I might pray for that person. That's the godly kind of love. I'm not saying this stuff's easy. I'm saying it's true and it's real. I genuinely used to get road rage. Anybody else ever had road rage? I mean, mad, punching windows, crazy stuff. That was just last week. I repented though, don't worry. God's full of grace and mercy and compassion. Punch that steering wheel. Don't do that. Because that's not love. That's worldly frustration. And there's a huge difference between frustrated and stirred in your spirit at the atrocity of evil in our world. Where Jesus, our great example, people persecuted him. They attacked him and he said, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, the first martyr, preaching the gospel, passionately telling the truth in love, and they stoned him, and he said, Father, forgive them, because love is not easily provoked. Paul is telling us, don't be quick to anger. Don't fly off the handle in rage. Compose yourself. Think of others more than you think of yourself. Be selfless. Be kind. Be patient, and don't be provoked easily. In your marriage, don't be provoked easily. When your spouse or, in our situation, your husband who continues to unintentionally do the things that you've been asked not to do and then you do them anyway because you forget, don't be irritable or easily provoked. Josh, you can come join us. The last one here is for today is that number nine is that love keeps no record of wrong, or love is not resentful. This word comes from a, the Greek word, I mean, I'm no Greek scholar here, but it's the word logizomai. Apologies if I'm saying that inappropriately. Logizomai, and it's, it, essentially it's a mathematical term. And it'll be used in accounting to keep records, like a bookkeeper keeps records. And what Paul's saying is that genuine godly love does not keep records of those things that have been wronged against you. Don't count up the tally of sin towards you and hold on to resentment and unforgiveness. It doesn't help. Holding on to those record of sins is one of the great ways to get yourself in a relational nightmare because something that happened 10 years ago will irritate you 10 years on because you're holding on to the way that someone hurt you, the way that someone treated you wrongly, that you're, you resent, you build up this resentment because res, holding on to evils, accounting, builds up resentment that you're always thinking they're going to do it again, they're going to do that thing again. I know they say they've changed and that's not love because soon we'll see that love hopes the best, but that's not hoping the best, that's expecting the worst and you're expecting the worst because you've got a tally of all those things those people did wrong to you and you're just waiting for them to mess up up again. 
And that's not how godly love does it. Doesn't mean you keep yourself in abusive situations. Doesn't mean you keep yourself in an environment where people are doing you wrong constantly. It means you won't hold it against them. You see, what's mostly trying to be pulled out of this inability to, so this, this idea to not hold records of wrongs is in hope of reconciliation. Because when you hold people to what they did to you, you keep yourself in what we would call a prison of unforgiveness. And it eats away at your soul. It eats away at your spirit. It'll eat away at that relationship with those people. You'll constantly be frustrated because you're like, why does everybody treat me so wrong? Because you've got these lists of things that people have done and you're holding on to them. And sometimes you think it's safe to hold on to them so you can see, see, I told you they'd do it again. But that's not the godly kind of love. It says love does not count the record of wrong. You know something fascinating about Jesus? About God, the ultimate judge, the author of life? Is that he doesn't count, keep count of our sins, of our error. He paid the price once and for all on the cross of Calvary. He doesn't have a book of your sin that you've committed. You think, I've committed lots of sin. And Jesus, the Bible says, he doesn't even remember it. You think, well, how can God not remember it? Because he's God. Well, he's God, so he cannot remember it. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Romans 4, 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Micah chapter 7, verse 19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, or in some translations, the sea of forgetfulness. Or Hebrews 8, verses 12 says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's not a book of all your sin waiting for you in heaven that when you get there, Jesus is going to say, well, you did this. and you." He remembers your sin no more. He's cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. There's a book that will either have your name in it or it won't. And if your name's in there, it'll say, you are righteous because of my blood. And I will not hold your sin against you. Imagine Jesus was so offended and provoked at our sin. And he said, I'm not going to die for them because they are terrible, wretched, pathetic people who keep on trampling on my name. They keep on doing this, that, and the other. And the sin that you commit when you are born again, son and daughter of the living God, he does not remember. And because of that sacrifice, because of God's supernatural ability to say, I remember your sin no more. I won't count it against you. It inspires us and empowers us to live for Him by His grace, in His mercy. And yet, how often do we hold the sins of others 
against us. When Jesus says, love keeps no record of wrong. Practically, you can think in your spirit right now, I know there are things in your life where someone has hurt you recently. Or someone's hurt you deeply. Or maybe it was 10 years ago and someone really hurt you and you've been holding on. Every time you see that person, you feel your... Or you remember and you... Today, practically, you say, Jesus, forgive them. Forgive them because it happens. People hurt people. You don't want to get hurt by a person, go sit in your room the rest of your life. Because people hurt people, intentionally, unintentionally. Jesus is saying there's power in an ability to forgive and not hold people to an account. Christ died for you. Now we can lay down our lives for others. Again, I'm, I'm, it's important that I under, I'm not saying you put yourself back in environments where someone has repeatedly hurt you and offended you. But don't count the records of wrong because if you count the records of wrong, there'll be never a hope for reconciliation. And reconciliation can look very different for different people in different environments, but there's a place where we deal with unforgiveness. Happens all the time. People are hurting. And they're broken because of how people have treated them. And those people have moved on. Those people are living their life, doing their thing. And here you are bound up in a prison of unforgiveness from something that someone did to you and they don't know anything about it. They're doing their thing and here you are still living in the effects of their offense when you're supposed to die to yourself, live for Jesus, forgive them, don't hold them to their wrongs, live in a selfless kind of loving way and live in your destiny and your purpose, yet you're chained up by what they did to you. And what they did to you has nothing to do with what you're going to do from here on out. doesn't mean it's easy. It means it's possible. It means it's God's plan for the flourishing of His people to live in a posture. Savannah and I, if you've ever heard our story, our marriage broke down after nine months. It was an absolute mess. When your marriage breaks down, if you've ever been involved in that, there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. We were separated for a year and a half with extra pain and more hurt built up over that time as we lived separate lives. Imagine we kept each other accountable for those wrongs. We would have lived miserable for the past 12 years. Good days and bad days, holding each other to what we did to each other in a whole different season of life and it would still be affecting us today. But love keeps no record of wrong. Because there's a better way. It's Jesus' way. It's the way of love. The way of being a Christian. The discipline do what we should do, when we should do it, even if we don't feel it. I don't feel like forgiving that person. Well, love says you should. You don't have to, but you know you should. To choose to walk in love. To not hold people's sins against them. To not be easily provoked or irritated. 
to not be rude, be patient and kind. And in doing so, we'll be a witness to the world, the reality of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the hope of humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. God, may your mercy and your grace empower us to live like you. God, we know we're not going to get it all perfect at every time, but we know that your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness and our inability, that we were never called to live this life of Christianity in our own good was always meant to be reliant fully upon spirit, grace, mercy. Before I ask Aaron to come up and close the service, I want us to rest in this environment. I feel strongly there are people that need to dig deep. You need to forgive. You've got that big list. Maybe it's in your marriage and you've you might have even written it down genuinely in a book. I've thought about doing that before. I'm going to write it down in a book. And the next time it comes up, see, I told you. I wrote it in a book that you'd do it again. I sense strongly there's someone here who, who genuinely writes it down in a book. you got a list. People who have hurt you. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe I don't know the situation. But I just sense that I can see the list and it's written down. Jesus is saying, you need to let that go. Getting rid of that list is the key to unlocking your chain. Just sit here, just close your eyes and just rest in His presence. In each of us, there will be different things where you're holding things against people. And just release it to Jesus. Might have been real bad. Justice is the Lord's. Just let it go. Let it go. freedom in hearts this morning, Lord Jesus. Freedom in the memories. Freedom from the flashbacks and the trauma and the PTSD, the pain and the hurt. 
freedom from unforgiveness, resentfulness. It's even affected health. We say freedom today. Lord, and I pray as we be the kind of people that choose to seek the well-being of others above our own, that we create a culture and an environment of flourishing for all. I thank you for marriages where there's resentment and hurt. Just right now, just grab the hand of your spouse next to you. Even if I'm not speaking to you directly, grab the hand of your spouse next to you if they're here and if they're not in your heart. And Father, I speak to these marriages and I say, hearts be soft. That the lists of hurt and pain and mistreatment from those that live day in, day out in the same household, that there would be a peace today that takes away the hurt, that from this day forward, there's a new day ahead of life and peace that's been unexpected, where it's been turbulent and seemed like it's never going to get better, where the thief has come in to steal, kill, and destroy in these relationships and these marriages. Lord, I say and I speak healing over them now, that they wouldn't hold each other for what they've done, but they would hope the best, that they would build together, that from today would be a new day in the season of their marriage. I speak to my marriage that from today there will be a new season in my marriage as we continue all to do our best to strive to live and look like Jesus, to outwork the disciplines of love. God, that we know you're calling us to, the higher standard you're calling us to. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen.